This is Live Arts with Savannah, and I am here at the Rubin Museum in New York City, and I am joined here by lifestyle contributor Fernando Prudhomme. We're on the fourth floor at the Tibetan Buddhist Shrine Room, where an altar, a Tibetan altar, has been recreated. I'm going to ask Fernando, tell us what do the various elements in this sacred shrine room represent? Well, first of all, we see here seven different altars within the entire shrine. The seven different altars within the shrine, within the Tibetan Buddhism philosophy, represents the seven levels of evolution of what we call Nirvana and also the seven levels of hell, which is the counterpart of the heavenly nirvana. These different altars represent an evolutionary journey and an evolutionary stand in which the soul must encounter and sojourn in order to reach nirvana, which is the higher evolutionary state of itself. Wouldn't that be to find ultimate inner peace, nirvana? Nirvana means, yes, it can be seen that way, but Nirvana means total union with the Creator, mm. total union with the Source. Interesting, interesting. So, tell us, what are on some of these altars? Well, we have here several levels of not only the deities, but also as above, so below. The different levels of deities represent the different levels of development that we must be able to sojourn while on incarnation on earth. If we reach, like in the West, the seven pillars of Hercules, this is so much the same as in the East, but it is a counterpart of the West. We are presented with seven trials that we must overcome to reach the higher self of our own Buddhahood of our own God self. The Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, not much different from the West, represents the same climb in Jacob's ladder of evolution, as is also um, accented by the Jewish, Hebrew, or the Aramaic religions. Wow, this is very fascinating. So we're going to take a moment and then stroll around and have you describe the other elements in the shrine room. So now, Mr. Perdon, we are standing before what looks like a doorway. Describe this for us. This door represents, as we can look at the center of the door, we see two concentric rings which pull open the door. And this door opens the realm of what we call the seven demonic realms. As you can see, each particular image on each side of the door represents a demonic figure with fire-raising eyebrows and a third eye and, and clenching canine teeth to devour the souls that come in. And we have here the skeletons, which symbolizes that this is the door that devours the, fault, the souls of those who are to be destined to walk to this door. This is a door that connotes karma. Each soul is here to purge and be renewed by going through the Bardo Todol, which is the Tibetan Book of the Dead. 
And it is the demonic realm in which the soul sojourns to be able to purge his dark nature and then rise back as a pure light. Wow. That's pretty, um, that's pretty heavy. So the goal is for the soul to go through the door so that eventually it can deal with its negative aspects and then yes. hopefully move towards a light sort of speak and Correct. so therefore cleanse the spirit and become and the, and the soul yes it is a purging we can make a correlation with christianity okay christianity has what we call the purgatory mm -hmm. it, the word purge mm. comes from purgatory which right. means that the soul is not condemned towards eternal hell he's sent there temporarily to expunge the sins of the incarnation which he is now uh, trying to recover from. Wow. We go to, towards a series of incarnations. Okay. Each incarnation requires that we purge from the last life. And these symbolic doors of any religion, mm -hmm. of all world religions, mm -hmm. symbolizes this threshold mm -hmm. and this rite of passage of the soul mm -hmm. to purge and expunge before reincarnating. Okay, so would you say that one of the aspects of this sacred space, of this sacred room, is to sort of educate people on life's journey so that they can become uh, a better human being, um, a more happy human being, a more satisfied human being? That is absolutely correct. We have the same correlation in the Buddhist philosophy, mm -hmm. where one so joins through the the what we call a tunnel mm -hmm. uh, and it is a tunnel where the soul goes and decides what parents to choose what circumstances to choose what sex is going to be more and the comrades and trials will be given to them mm -hmm. in which for them to be able to advance the soul mm -hmm. the same is true of those who are condemned by karma and must return to the earth and be able to pay their debt for what they have done as a, as a transgression. This also is a form of expunging the acts of the soul from but, previous lifetimes. But wouldn't you also say, because that may be difficult for some people to understand, that they may have lived multiple life uh, right. uh, uh, times, but just in everyday life, would you say that this room is basically helping people to go through a journey where they can learn how they can evolve. Absolutely. It goes back to the axiom, as above, so below. Okay. So okay. therefore, the gods, we were creating God's image and okay. God's likeness, as is expressed in all religious philosophies. Mm -hmm. We are here to sojourn and experience being in earthly matter mm -hmm. and taking that experience to elevate and nourish the soul. Okay, that's great. So we're gonna get ready to move to the next room. So we're in the studio with Fernando Prudhomme, who's a lifestyle contributor on religion and culture and astrology. And so he's been very gracious in talking with us about the Tibetan exhibition at the Rubin Museum. But now we wish to ask 
Fernando, more about altars and why people have altars in their homes, not necessarily in a church or a temple, from a you know, cultural and historical perspective. So, Fernando, enlighten us a little bit about your insights about why people have altars at home. Well, first of all, we have to begin the discussion with discussing that there are two types of altars. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the altar of the nation, and that's any nation. Mm -hmm. And then there's the individual altar of a family or an individual. For example, uh, an altar is supposed to symbolize a connection between you and a higher source. Okay. It becomes a focal point or a reference point where morally and spiritually you can gain a form of anchorage to give meaning to your life, whether it's moving into a good direction or a positive direction. Uh, Life doesn't unfold without some kind of spiritual guidance to move the direction of life. All right. right. And the direction of life, like Darwinism, is extremely random with no direction morally. That has to come from an outside source. And this is where we have religion, which separates from state. So we can say that the altar symbolizes a moral direction in which to move creation forward. We can say that about a person who has an altar in their living room. Mm -hmm. And they may be upset or they may be ill or they may be depressed. And whatever machinations in their lives doesn't seem to be enough to get them out of their depression or to get them out of their circumstances in which they might need that extra help. Okay. So therefore, human beings throughout all ages have focused that extra help that they may need outside of themselves. That makes sense. And because our deity, as we've been taught, is invisible, Mm -hmm. we cannot see him, touch him, smell him, taste him, then we need a focal point to symbolize that deity. And that is the conception of the altar. Mm. And the altar was born out of the human necessity for guidance Mm -hmm. outside of itself. Okay, that's really... That's really fascinating. Okay, that's really good. Uh, Taking it back to the uh, altar of a nation, the uh, Washington Monument, the obelisk, Mm -hmm. that's an altar. Really? Yes, and it's an altar for the country. In China, the obelisk in that country is a symbol of an altar for that country. That's why every country on the planet has an obelisk, which goes from Egypt Egypt were the first temple priests, going back to the uh, Ptolemaic or even the Judefri dynasty. So this is the concept of the altar. Wow. Now, this is really interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't think about that at all. So A country needs a direction morally and spiritually. Right. The presidents and prime ministers who have been appointed by the deities to lead the nation and to raise the moralization of a nation need also a focal point for the collective, and that is represented by the obelisk. Wow. So what was the obelisk again in China? I was just curious. As it is in all countries of the world, it is a symbol 
of direction of union between itself and the gods that are directing the destiny of that country. Oh, no, I got that part. I mm-hmm. was trying to find out what was the physical symbol. Is it uh, a garden or is it a sculpture? Uh, in China, it, 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 this has changed throughout the different feudal systems of China. Okay. Well, China has a very extensive feudal history, mm-hmm. and with, there were different obelisks to I represent gotcha. different nations and states. It wasn't just one; it was multiple. Exactly, kind of like the Greeks. Mm. You know, well, before Greece was unified, it was broken into different mm-hmm. states, which is where we get the Trojan War. Mm-hmm. They were fighting different parts of Greece, mm-hmm. and they had different obelisks until it was unified. Okay, gotcha. Ah, this is really fascinating. I never thought about nations needing a altar or symbolic symbol to deal with morality for their nation. Well, we can take it further. Each capital city of a country is also symbolic of an obelisk and also symbolic of an altar, where the smaller provinces, the smaller towns, depend nourishment from the capital cities as far as resources, mm. as far as money, mm. as far as education, as far as wow. health, as far as sustenance. So the capital city becomes the focal point for the entire nation to depend on. That also symbolizes as an altar for the nation. Now we're going to take a break and come back to talk further with Fernando. So, Fernando, we're back again. Help me to understand, um, would you say then that there's some sort of relationship with all of these different um, religions somehow? Yes. Um, they're really, the, the differences is more of an illusion mm-hmm. because there is no difference. They're all the same. All the gods are the same. The gods from China, the gods from um, Iraq, the gods from the West, you know, it's all the same deities. It's all the same seven principles. Even in Kwanzaa, where we have the Nagusu Saba, the seven African principles, Mm -hmm. or the Orishas, the seven African powers. You know, it's all the same deities. The African deities, the Chinese deities, the, the India, Brahman, Vishnu, you know, Kali, you know, wow. Shaktida, you know, uh, Kali or Lilith, even even going to the mythological gods. They're all the same, different expressions. Like it says in Genesis, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. If you notice in the phraseology, you have a plural pronoun. Oh. It's talking about our. So it's not one God. It's many gods, and there have been many gods that create our image and our likeness, which means that we're not only going to look like the gods, but we're going to personify their personalities. Because that's what the term, if you look at it carefully, the likeness is making reference to the personalities of the gods while the image is making reference to the physicality of how we look like. Two arms, two legs, and a head. That's why every god in every country and every religion looks like us with the same limbs because like it's written in the Sanskrit text or the Aramaic or Archaic text. We look like them. 
but we also act and behave like them. So that makes reference to the astrology, which has to deal with the personalities of each individual as it is with the gods. So this becomes a codified key. That was really, <laughs> that was amazing. So therefore, that's, it's a kind of a beautiful thing because sure. you're saying they were all tapping into the same spirit. Yes, the same primordial essence or like the Kabbalists like to call it the first swirlings. All the gods come from the first swirlings, the ends off. Mm. but they break down into different personalities and likenesses according to the dictates of the evolution of these races and cultures, which anthropologically we still know very little about. So it's, it, it is almost like poetry to some degree. Absolutely. That when we look at these various religions and the, the cultural traditions um, that have manifested out of them, it's really, like you're saying, different variations of humans in a very sort of connecting and beautiful way. But for somehow, uh, people don't seem to understand that, but we really are all connected. We're all one family. We all come from the sea of the primordial ethers. Isn't that amazing? Which everything comes from, yes. So... <laughs> This is great because then you can appreciate all of these various religions without necessarily having to practice all of these religions. Absolutely. It's more about principles versus religion, uh, philosophy versus religion, um, wouldn't you say? Well, it's all really the same. If you look at the word religion, religio, which comes from the Latin, which means to gather. Mm. So when you gather people together... You know, that energy of a group, of a collective, actually can personify the deity that we vibrate to. When two or three gather together in my name. In my name, like in the Book of Matthew. in the midst. Absolutely. It is no different in the East than it is in the West. If two or more people communicate, get together, the deity is present. Isn't that amazing? So uh, you can be a walking, talking, breathing altar as well because the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit is inside you like it's discussed in the West. Mm -hmm. We are temples of the Holy Ghost. So we are also altars. Interesting. No much different than a man and a woman who walks down the altar to get married. There is the presence of God with more than two people in remembrance of me, the priest, the marriage couple, and deity. That is an altar. Interesting. That is very fascinating. That's why they call it an altar. But it still goes back to what I'm saying. You don't necessarily have to get caught up necessarily in one religion. You could, no. You can be respectful of all of these various religions because the source is the same is all the same it's all the same that's it, really beautiful because then you could go to Cambodia or you can go to Egypt or you could go to Brazil and or Israel, or and, Israel. And, and visit the Temple Mount right and and enjoy it all because you can understand that these variations are all related and it's kind of a beautiful thing and it's the same deity isn't that wonderful? Well, 
I think this was great, uh, Fernando, the fact that we were able to focus and concentrate on that sacred space exhibition and at the Rubin Museum with the Tibetan um, uh, shrine. And then we could talk about altars in general and then to talk about religion and, you know, this higher being and its connectivity to all people. Yes. So I want to thank you so much for contributing and working with us as we discuss this and learn to understand each other more as people and building bridges. Correct. As opposed to divides. Thank well, you so. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. Okay. Bye-bye.